Hello, and welcome to the 24th episode of The Broadcast, a Chicago podcast dedicated to showcasing women who are making an impact on Chicago and their communities. For our return listeners, welcome back, and thank you so much for your continued support. And if this is your first time listening to The Broadcast, welcome. We're glad you found us. All of this is possible because of you and our amazing sponsors and partners, including Evolver, Chicago's first creative co-working space for women, The Insurance People, a woman and minority-owned agency focused on small business health insurance, individual health insurance, and Medicare supplements, and our podcast home, 1871, which is Chicago's premier hub for entrepreneurs, innovation, and technology, and apparently in the world, since they just got another award recognizing their amazing impact that they're having. And I'm Becky Carroll. I'm president and CEO of C Strategies, and I'm also your host. So 2019 has been quite the year for politics here in Illinois and Chicago, to say the least. Uh, And if you're a member of the media covering politics, you are pretty much, I'd say, in journalism heaven. And here with us today to headline our annual The Broadcast Year in Review and Look Ahead is The Daily Line's managing editor and Chicago City Hall reporter, Heather Sharon. Heather, Welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Yay. And your first one. So yes. extra special. We've had like a few repeat guests here and there. So I'm looking forward to finding a way to get you on next I year. I will try to do my <clears throat> best to be worthy of a return experience. Oh, well, okay. Well, let's see how we do here. So first, why don't you start just telling us a little bit about yourself and also the daily line. So I grew up in Chicago and I am a dyed-in-the-wool political junkie. Woo-hoo. I uh, followed politics from when I was a kid, and my life's goal was to cover Chicago City Hall. So, check. Um, I always (laughs) thought uh, Mayor Daly would still be mayor. Didn't we all? Uh, Yes. um, (laughs) I missed him by a couple of years, but I got to cover Rahm Emanuel before he left office, and now I'm covering Lori Lightfoot and the city council, and it is never a dull moment, which is what we chronicle in the Daily Line. Uh, We cover city, county, and state politics, so every morning, subscribers get an email with everything everything they need to know to start their day to figure out what's going on at City Hall, at the State House, and over on the Cook County side of the the building. And we really hope to be sort of a one-stop shop for the important context that everybody needs to sort of put those news hits in context. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like there's like a lot of information, but maybe not a lot of knowledge. So we try to balance it out a little bit. It's been really great because someone who has worked many, many years at City Hall and at the state, uh, you know, not everyone who covers politics is able to get to the nitty gritty of the committee hearings and what's said and what's moving, because those are really important, because by the time those are said and done, basically everything that goes to city council is a done deal, for example, right? So That's right. So you're, you're there in those hearings, in those meetings, covering all the nuances, and I think it's become a really valuable resource. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And we're subscribers. So, you know, we like it quite <laughs> quite quite much. So speaking of all these storylines that have been reported in 2019, and with you covering both Chicago and Illinois politics, obviously, the county as well, you know, I feel at times it's hard to kind of keep up with all of them. So to help our listeners, out here. Can you sum up, say, three of the top storylines or so of the year that really have stood out the most to you and why, would you say? So I think the biggest story statewide is the new governor, J.B. Pritzker, ending four years of Republican control of the governorship. And when he came into office, 
I don't think it's talked about enough that he had super majorities in the Illinois House and the Illinois Senate, which meant he came into office with a lot of hype and a lot of expectations that he would immediately begin to get stuff done after four years where really nothing, nothing. got done um, at the state level. And I think it would have been hard pressed for it not to live up to that hype because everybody, especially on the Democratic side, was raring to go and to show what mm-hmm. they could do after four years in the wilderness, so to yes. speak. And that's why you saw, you know, J.B. Pritzker come out right away for changing the state's income tax structure from a flat tax to a graduated tax that would raise somewhere in the neighborhood of $3.7 billion and would help, they say, put Illinois on a better path of financial stability, Mm -hmm. even though the state still has a billions and billions and billions dollar backlog in bills and nearly 140 million dollar 140 billion sorry of pension <laughs> debt. It's a little overwhelming when you're yeah, thinking about it. Really it really is. Especially <laughs> that pension debt. <laughs> yeah. So that will be in on the ballot in November 2020. So that is going to be a just the reddest of red letter days. You've got the presidential election and mm-hmm. then you have this which will really shape whether Pritzker is seen as sort of a successful governor because if he's not able to get that through, his ability to change the state's budget and sort of solve those longtime intractable problems is going to be really limited. Yeah, much more of a challenge without a doubt. And what do you think um, at the city perhaps has been one of the more most dominant storylines? Well, I think there are really two. One, it's the indictment of Alderman Ed Burke mm-hmm. and sort of the sense that there are all of these looming federal investigations what swirling around. What a net around, they cast, right, very wide. <laughs> right, swirling around City Hall. And also, of course, Mayor Rahm Emanuel's decision not to seek a third term and the overwhelming victory of Lori Lightfoot um, in the race to replace him. Mm -hmm. And those two stories, I think, might seem separate, but I think they're very connected. Because if you think back to this time last year, Lori Lightfoot was running hard. She was having press conferences. She was, you know, trying to get attention. And there were several events that she held where it was only a handful of reporters. And that all changed when we came back from Christmas break and holiday break. Mm -hmm. And uh, Alderman Ed Burke was charged with attempted extortion, which we know now is really just the tip of his legal problems. But that really changed the tenor of the mayoral election. Very much right place, right time with her message. And she was able to capitalize on her experience as a reformer and her sort of record as a federal prosecutor to come in and say, look, it's clear something's broken at City Hall. I will bring in the light, as right. she said in that in that <laughs> ad. And that's really what swept her into first place in the first round mm-hmm. of voting. And then she won 75% of the vote, every ward, every precinct, except for a handful in right. Tony Preckwinkle's. pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, Hyde Park stronghold. So those are, th- those are the two big stories of 2019. What's interesting is that we don't know how they're going to play out in 2020. It's all up in the air still. Right. And it is fascinating because I think you're right. They are really connected, not just because that kind of helped usher her in, but I mean, she's been able to still capitalize on that to, to, you know, because her message has been, I'm going to change the way things are done. And a lot of it has to do with ethics. And I think voters are really looking for that. So she still has that platform that's helping her continue to kind of move things forward. 
we'll see if the act continues because voters sometimes have a short attention span. That's but right. it certainly has dominated this year, which has really flown by, by mm-hmm. the way, because there's been so much and going on. And at the same on. time, sometimes felt like a decade. It's yeah. like time has begun to move in weird ways. Because like if you said, Heather, Rahm Emanuel decided not to run for a third term a decade ago, I'd be like, yeah, that sounds about right. I've right. aged about a decade since then. <laughs> right. But it really hasn't been all that long. No. And it's just been sort of one thing after another. Yes, and I think there will still be more than one <laughs> yes. thing after another remaining to come from from what we all can observe so far. Yeah. So going back to the state house, I mean, it's kind of also easy to forget that Ronner was still just in office a year ago, given that so much has gotten done in the first inaugural year of Governor Pritzker's administration and is really not even technically a year yet. And, you know, you're based in Chicago and Hannah Mizell is on your team, right, reporting Mm -hmm. straight out of Springfield. What have your observations been about his first near year in office? And as you mentioned earlier, there was a lot of hype. So do you think he's lived up to it? Well, you know, I think he has. We're going to have the minimum wage in Illinois start to rise. I think that was a longtime progressive goal that was blocked by Rauner. Yep. And there, it was not by mistake that that was the first thing that J.B. Pritzker did right when he came the into the office. Mm-hmm. The other thing, of course, is huge is the legalization of marijuana. And that will start January 1st. And Knock I, on wood. Knock on wood. <laughs> I think that that poses a significant amount of political peril for J.B. Pritzker because not only is it a huge cultural change, I Mm -hmm. think, for Illinois, which is in some ways a Midwest conservative cultural state. But also he has pledged that this will, this legalization effort will benefit those who were impacted the most by the the war on drugs. And that means- The social justice side, yeah. And there's been a lot of controversy at the city level about whether that's actually going to be how this works. And Mm -hmm. I think that about halfway through the year, we'll be able to tell sort of who's going to sort of benefit from this you know, legalization effort and how much people are benefited from it. And I think if you see white-owned firms benefiting from it all, that that's going to pose a political problem for J.B. Pritzker. Well, it's really interesting that when they had that first round to go for the licenses at City Hall, I remember looking at the pictures, I think it was the Tribune, and there wasn't a person of color in the entire room. And that was really how it was structured because they wanted this to start of January 1st. And the easiest way to do that was to basically award recreational marijuana licenses to those already selling medical medical marijuana. The problem with that is, is that was such... So it was a pilot program for so many years, so nobody really knew whether it was actually going to continue. Mm -hmm. So there were high barriers to entry. And when you have high barriers to entry, you're going to get big multinational firms that are well capitalized. And those firms are by and large owned by white men. Right. And that's sort of where we are now in this interim period. So we'll be able to tell after May who gets that second wave of licenses, which are supposed to give priority to black and brown people who live in areas where there have been a high number of arrests. But if it doesn't turn out that way, and if those licenses continue to go to white-owned firms, I think that 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 we're going to have to see. We're going to see that at least attempts made to revive. Yeah, it's really fascinating to kind of look at the how the social equity piece has been kind of baked into the state law. But I, I think we need to give a lot of 
Yeah, I'd like to give a lot of credit, of course, to the sponsors of the bill who really worked hard to bake into that bill, the social equity piece, senators, former Senator Hutchinson, and of course, Staines and representatives Cassidy and Jahan Gordon Booth, because that was that was their priority. And of course, the governor's administration was right on board with that. So they made that happen. And if you look at how it's actually structured, I mean, it's kind of difficult to not submit a proposal without having that included because you're not going to have a leg up. So I'm, I'm hopeful that it will have the desired outcome that it's supposed to have. And so even with those, and you mentioned, you know, he's got super majorities in the House and Senate. I mean, even with those, do you think he can sustain this momentum going into his second legislative session? Or do you think there are going to be some hiccups? And if so, what might those be? So I think J.B. Pritzker is in a little bit of a precarious position because it seems like his fate is potentially tied up into these swirling federal investigations, which, of course, are not only focused on City Hall, but right. are also sort of focused on the Capitol as well. It's rarely when it's both right. City Hall and the Capitol. Right. And which now is why it's both. <laughs> every political and reporter in Chicago like has consistently had their hair on fire <laughs> yes. for, like, for the last year and a half. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we know know that the federal investigators are asking questions about House Speaker Michael Madigan, who, of course, has said he's done nothing wrong and has nothing to fear from these investigations. But even a casual observer of the news coverage can see that the the feds appear to be drawing a closer and closer circle to the House Speaker. And that, of course, will make everybody a little bit nervous because he is the longest serving House Speaker in United States history. He has been there pretty much for 40 years with unrivaled power. So if he's weakened, what does that mean for the governor's legislative agenda, I think is a big question. Also, Senator Martin Sandoval will resign on January 1st, and his offices were raided as part of Mm -hmm. one at least prong of this investigation. And he was in charge of the $45 billion capital bill, which a lot of state lawmakers plan to use to campaign on in in 2020. And that, I think, that whether that rolls out seamlessly will also play a big part in sort of how things work in in Springfield. Yeah, and I think that at least the capital bill is passed, and now I think it's... um, partly the Capital Development Board and others who will have now their, and some of those other infrastructure agencies don't have the the responsibility to actually execute it, right? But yeah, it will be fascinating to see if others continue to drop because depending on where they are in the pecking order and, and how many votes they're able to move on one bill to the other, it could or could not potentially impact, but it might. And I don't know. I don't think we've probably seen the last of what the federal investigators are looking at, right? We, we have not. I, I feel confident in making that prediction that we do <laughs> not know what we do not know. Right, right. Well, <laughs> when that does come back, then I'm going to have you back on the show. <laughs> so uh, in terms of the, the fair tax passing on the ballot in November, what can you tell us about where that seems to stand now? I mean, I know obviously the go- it was just reported recently the governor put $5 million into the vote yes for fair tax initiative. And then you also have IPI and other other little 
<laughs> entities yes. that are rallying. There's there's IPI and then there's WirePoints and there, I mean there's so many I, yes. I've lost count. But so where where does that seem to stand and where do you think it's headed? So it's a big lift. It's not easy to amend the state constitution yeah. by design. It needs a two thirds vote and it's going to be a very expensive and hard fought campaign. I think Pritzker's five million dollar contribution is just a drop in the proverbial bucket. (laughs) But I think that we're starting to see the outlines of what the argument against the graduated income tax will be, which is that you saw this week the Tribune editorial board, which is often sort of the loudest conservative voice um, Mm -hmm. in state politics, which is, of course, separate from its news operations. But their argument basically was this week, with all these investigations swirling around, how can we trust Springfield to spend this much more money? So that's, again, sort of where those other two storylines are coming into yeah. <laughs> to play. So if you see, you know, sort of, you know, if you see repeated sort of raids or, you know, lawmakers charged or, you know, I think that is going to make it difficult for Pritzker to say, no, 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 we're really going to be good stewards of your money because Illinois sort of has you know, for better or for worse, a really uh, deep, entrenched Mm -hmm. reputation for corruption. So if people are sort of already leery about voting for the income tax, are they going to be swayed because this is all going on and maybe they don't know and that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. So I think that will have to be addressed one way or other as part of the campaign. But, you know, it's, 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 like I said, by design, not easy to amend the Constitution. But what happens if it doesn't happen? I mean, Illinois is, you know, nearly dead last in the amount of, of, you know, sort of pension funding. There's clearly significant structural problems with the way the state is funded. And what's interesting is about like IPI and wire points, you don't really see another option. There's no sort of, here's what we would do instead. Well, we should cut. Okay, well, where would you cut? Would you cut DCFS, which is also insignificant turmoil? Mm -hmm. Or, okay, all right, would you cut education funding? Right. Well, we just sort of changed the way schools are funded, so you're going to take school funding away. So I think that will sort of be what Pritzker responds. Okay, not this. Then what? Then what? We have serious problems. Yeah. Yeah, their entire campaign seems to be based on fear, mm-hmm. basically, and fear of the unknown, given what we do know today, right, and yeah. the distrust that does exist. But there's really no alternative. And people have been trying to change this for 20 plus years. I mean, when Don Clark Natch ran for governor <laughs> in 1994, I mean, she was the one. She's the one that took all the first right. hits for putting it out there. And people called her crazy and all sorts of things. And she lost and whatnot. And then you know, people are finally coming around and now, you know, Democrats and folks who have supported this because there's a lot of bipartisan support for it. You know, they're this close. But, yeah, it's all going to depend, I think, on who else is going to fund the argument against it. Because, you know, wire points and IPI, they put out all this stuff. I don't know if there's more than people, just us in this room, that are reading it or not. But it's out there. And it's a well, matter of how they're going to push that message out widely. Sure. And you can't, I think, discount the fact that this is on the November 2020 ballot where everybody in Illinois, Democrats in Illinois, are going to go to the polls to vote against against Donald Trump. So this mm-hmm. is, if you are a Democrat, if you are a progressive, this is a, you know, an election that you feel like you have to be a part of. So you're more likely to turn out and you're more likely to be receptive to the governor's arguments about we need to change.
change the way that we're doing business. So there's no mistaking why this measure is on the November 2020 ballot. It could have been on this March's ballot. There was plenty of time. There's a reason why that didn't happen. And it's clearly that they're hoping to sort of tie this change to whomever is the Democratic nominee for president to say, like, we need a change. We need to do things differently. Yeah. And Illinois is a very blue state and very engaged. (laughs) And the timing is hopefully going to work out for those who do want to, in fact, bring that change. And, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. But I think it is going to be a difficult road to getting there. But you know, they're this close. It's like you got to go all in at this point. And if not now, when? when? Right. And, you know, what happens if You'll this never fails? have that perfect storm, right. I think, of having the super majorities right. to move it to this point and then getting on a ballot during a presidential year where you're going to have high turnout. Yeah, it would be a big loss, so to speak, if that yes. did not happen. Oh, it would be a huge political yeah. defeat for, for J.B. Pritzker, especially because he's clearly indicated that he's going to fund whatever it takes. Yeah. So not only is his political capital on the line, his sort of ability to sort of move voters with his political contribution. Right. is also on the line. Yeah, and I think that there's some very smart people on the outside who know what they're doing and know how to run campaigns and advocacy campaigns like this. But more than anything, voters really need to understand what it, what's at stake. And I assume that those arguments are going to be made yes. as part of this campaign on both sides. Yes. But, you know, there's Absolutely. really very few options available outside of, like, really dramatically increasing income taxes and other things which are regressive and right. you know that's that's not going to get even generate the revenue you need structurally right. over you know the long term so 2019 going switching a little bit back to city hall 2019 represented obviously sea change in Chicago politics in addition to electing new mayor we had many new faces in city council as well so what's it been like to be on the front lines you know covering these elections citywide ward by ward and now that they're embedded you know into the system what do you think kind of drove people voters to make the decisions they made and what's it been like so far it's really exciting it's a it's a fabulous time to be covering city hall covering Lori Lightfoot is very different than covering Rahm Emanuel. He was very scripted. You know, Mm -hmm. there was a message of the day. And with Lori Lightfoot, it's certainly less disciplined, although no less hard-hitting in terms of that. And she has a very different city council than Rahm Emanuel had. There are now six members of the Democratic Socialists of America on the city council. And in a twist that I don't think a lot of people saw coming, those progressive aldermen have sort of coalesced into the biggest source of opposition to her, Mm -hmm. which you would not really have, I think, guessed beforehand because, of course, she said, well, I'm here to chart a new progressive course for the city. And yet she sort of run into opposition from those socialist members of the city council as well as the more progressive members of the city council, which I think will be determinative in how sort of the the rest of of her, you know, administration in 2020. That's the big challenge she's facing. Well, I think the definition of progressive continues to evolve because there there's progressive and then there is progressive. Yes. And, you know, the far left is is different than folks who consider themselves to the left of center. Right. And then, of course, there's the center. And you still have a mix of all of those people right. on the council. But, yeah, it's clearly continued to move more towards the left. It's a matter of whether or not can they do enough to become a block that can really change and impact 
where she's headed with some of these policies. Right. And I, something I've been thinking a lot about lately is the difference between a progressive and the and a reformer. Mm-hmm. I, I think that Lori Lightfoot clearly sees herself as a reformer before she sees herself as a progressive. I think you're right about that. And I think that that is going to create tension because there are members of the city council who aren't don't really care so much about ethics reform. They don't really care so much about Edward. Well, now they want to hold on to their quote-unquote aldermanic uh, right, prerogative yeah. that I think some of them may have run against before, yeah. perhaps. Well, you know, it's aldermanic prerogative when somebody's doing something you don't want to do. Exactly. When you're doing it, it's, you're protecting your community, and that yeah. I think will also be a huge tension because Lori Lightfoot is going to have to convince the city council, if she's successful, to give up a significant amount of their power. And I don't know that I've ever met a politician who willingly gives up power. Especially once they're in it. (laughs) Then things seem to change, regardless if you're to the far left, far right, or somewhere in between. So how would you, I guess, you know, kind of rate her term so far. I mean, we're only like six-ish months in. It feels longer, but it's not. Um, And what would you maybe say are some of her biggest accomplishments and, you know, biggest challenges? So she's had three major challenges, I think. The 11-day teachers union strike, the $838 million budget deficit, which is not totally closed, which... Well, it's still relying on some things that haven't happened, right. right? And then, of course, the sort of recent conflagration over police superintendent Eddie Johnson. Mm -hmm. And she's going to have to find a new police superintendent. She's going to have to sort of keep figuring out how to deal with the city's financial considerations because the city is in by no means out of the woods. The projected budget deficit for 2021 is $900 million. And the projected budget deficit for 2022 is $800 million. And most of that's because the city has to pay a significant amount more toward its pensions. So so the mayor's going to have to figure out next year how to start addressing those. And it's not something that is going to be able to be wait until next fall when the city starts sort of really crafting that budget deficit. She's got to start working on that now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, she's also got to sort of prepare for a challenge from that progressive side of things because mm-hmm. the old adage is, is you've got a year to govern and then you have to start running again. Yep. And she's halfway through that year period, yeah. which means that she can sort of point to significant accomplishments like J.B. Pritzker. She will raise the minimum wage in Chicago faster than statewide. Mm-hmm. She also passed a predictive scheduling ordinance that will require employee employers to give their employees more advanced notice of their schedule. And she's also pushed through two major ethics reform changes that will change the way that aldermen are allowed to work outside of City Hall. And we will see whether there will be more enforcement cases or whether that will change the way aldermen operate. And we've already seen some, um, although it's hard to separate because uh, Ed Burke is facing 14 counts of corruption, even though he's pled not guilty and is no longer working as a property tax attorney. (laughs) Right. So um, that's a big change. There's a small win. (laughs) Yeah. So that's a big change. But we will see, I think, increased efforts to ban outside employment for aldermen in total. Mm -hmm. And I think when that happens, then you're really sort of changing the nature of the city council. It really changes the culture to a very good extent, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, she's had some bumps. I mean, I would never, having worked for two mayors, 
there's no way that a new mayor who is also very new to the way the process works on the inside is not going to have some bumps and yes. whatnot. But she's clearly had some wins and still has another six plus months to get some other wins to continue sure. some momentum in the right direction. Because I kind of feel like whether you're for her or against her, like the city really needs to be united in trying to address our budget deficit because yeah. it's going to impact everyone, yes. especially the most vulnerable and even those who aren't vulnerable. So I'd yes. like to think, can everyone try to get along? We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of the budget, you know, from what you're observing and some of the sources that you've been talking to, what do you think might be some of the more viable options on the table to address our financial woes? Like, it doesn't seem to me like a sale tax or a head tax is going to go anywhere. I know that's the far left would like to see those. I think they're they're foolish uh, ideas because they won't actually have the intended, but that's just my, my own personal opinion. But they don't seem like they're going anywhere. But what else could be in store for Chicago in addressing this budget crisis? Well, I would imagine after the holidays, the mayor will put away the eggnog and turn— <laughs> Have a lot of eggnog, yes. though. Enjoy it <laughs> yes. while you can. <laughs> and then turn turn her attention back towards Springfield because mm-hmm. she needs several things from Springfield that she didn't get during the fall veto session. So she needs state lawmakers to change the structure of a Chicago casino. Mm -hmm. Right now, she is absolutely adamant that it would not be financially viable and that nobody would bid for it, nobody Mm -hmm. would operate it because it would have an effective tax rate of 72%, which is really high. That is very Um, high. So she's going to ask them to change those. The problem with that is that when you reopen that gambling bill, which is the biggest Christmas tree of all Christmas trees, you're going to have every lawmaker from every part of Illinois saying, well, why is Chicago getting a better deal? What about me, says the Rockford (laughs) people? What about me, say, you know, everybody else who wants a little bit of their own? So that's going to be very difficult. Which is why it's been so difficult even getting this casino bill to where it is today because everyone wanted something. Because it passed, and it passed by really the skin of its teeth. People didn't think it would happen. Right. right. The waning moments of the the regular session in the spring. So she also needs the lawmakers to change the way that the city taxes real estate transfers. So when you buy a piece of property, you pay a tax to the city. Right now, that is a flat tax, no matter how expensive the the property is. Mm -hmm. She wants homes basically that sell for more than a million dollars to pay a little bit more and then going on up. And then she would reduce the tax for homes less than $300,000. So it would be a little bit of a benefit for mm-hmm. lower income people. She needs state lawmakers for that too. However, again, like the city council, the opposition she ran into was the progressive caucus in right. the Illinois House because they wanted that money earmarked for homelessness services. Right, and affordable housing, right. yeah. Which was something that she promised to do during the campaign. And when she took office, she said, oh, I didn't realize there was basically a billion-dollar deficit. So right. I'm sorry we can't do that now. We will do our best, but right now we need to focus on the budget deficit. And they said, okay, we agree, we get it, the budget is really bad. Let's raise the tax a little bit more so we generate more revenue. And she just wouldn't agree to that. Right. So they're going to have to figure that out somehow. And then uh, at the same time... <laughs> It will be interesting to see whether marijuana proves more lucrative than the city is expecting, because right now the city budget really only expects about $3 million, give or take, in marijuana revenue. That's Mm -hmm. a literal drop in the bucket. Right. So if the business, if the the legalization takes off, then the city can sort of budget for a more robust tax 
revenue base, I think that will help as well. Um, the other thing that people are starting to talk about is the progressives proposal to require nonprofit organizations to pay something that's called payment in lieu of property taxes. So if you're a hospital. Oh, I have not heard about yeah, this. So if you're a hospital, you don't pay property taxes, mm-hmm. right? You are, you give charity care, you sort right. of give back to the, the community right. in other ways. So there's a movement among progressives nationwide, really, and this is in place in other places right now that basically they would sort of calculate what their property tax would be mm-hmm. if they were a private institution or if they were a for-profit institution and that they would pay some share of that to the city to help the city's budget deficit. Hmm. Now, much like politicians, volunteering to give up power happens never. People rarely volunteer to pay taxes. Right. <laughs> Let alone so, more. Right. So <laughs> that's going to be a really hard lift, but it is something that the Lightfoot administration is at least open to discussing with mm-hmm. the Progressive Caucus. So that's mm-hmm. also a possibility and something I'll be watching very closely yeah. in 2020. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there's not a lot of options. Right. And you know, under the daily administration, property taxes were virtually never increased. Right. Now, if they had been gradually every year, like cost of living or right. t- tied to CPI, you know, then the 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 hit wouldn't have been so big. But we've already what had a half billion dollar right. property tax increase right. and a minor one in this last one. Right. I mean, it's it's hard to keep going back to people over and over right. again. So. Yeah, well, we'll be keeping our eye <laughs> yes. on like what still might be coming. Um, yes. You know, you've um, we've been talking a lot about aldermen, and I thought it was interesting because uh, I've I can't really recall another elected doing this, but the mayor came out with a website that reportedly I haven't actually seen it, but it reportedly takes aim at aldermen who voted against her budget, and it seems to be an unusual move. I mean, maybe not as unusual during campaign season when, yes, yeah, when you pick sides and, you know, you're rewarding those who are helpful and you're not rewarding those who weren't. But, I mean, she's got more than three years left in her um, term here. So what chatter are you hearing about this on the inside, even by those who aren't targeted by this website? Like, Is this a smart move? So I think that people were surprised by it. It's a hard-nosed politician's move, right, to basically put the people who voted against you on blast, which is essentially Mm -hmm. what this this website does. And what's interesting is that I think it is proof that that the mayor, although this is her first elected office, her first experience as a politician, is it's more proof of the cliche that politics ain't beanbag in Chicago. And these, there were 11 aldermen who voted no against them, against this budget. So if you, you know, look up your alderman or you look up your address, you will be prompted with a sort of a screen of, let's say you live in the 14th Ward, mm-hmm. Alderman Ed Burke made the right decision. He <laughs> voted for this budget, which, you know, has this amount of money for, you know, these great things. Why don't you send him an email to say That's thank you? That's kind of you? ironic, but yeah. It, which, you know, is awkward <laughs> because the mayor has said he's corrupt. He should step down. He, you know, has declined to do so. And then if you live in the 47th Ward, for example, you would pull up your alderman, Matt Martin, who is a progressive young lawyer who shares a lot of things in common with the mayor. And his screen is, he made the wrong decision. Send him an email that says what he did wrong. And what's interesting is that if you go back and you listen to Matt Martin's speech announcing that he had to vote no, it was more in sadness than in anger. It wasn't like, the mayor's a terrible person, this, this is wrong. 
you know, he was like, I just can't get there because it doesn't have enough money for homelessness and, and affordable housing and it's too much money for the And some of the things department. that he ran on right, right, that right. were a priority um, for him. But it was not in any way an aggressive speech. Right. And I think you have to question whether the mayor will benefit from taking an aggressive approach with aldermen like that mm-hmm. rather than sort of taking the W, as a sports fan might right. say, <laughs> and, you know, just sort of working behind the scenes to sort of deal with those disagreements on policy. It was also very different than Rahm Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel really liked those 50 to nothing votes. Right. He liked that sort of notion that, you know, he had everybody's support. So which isn't to say that there wasn't disagreements, but those right. disagreements were handled behind the scenes. Right. The arm right. twisting was behind the scenes. It yes. wasn't in public. The sausage on, making was not right. in public. <laughs> it, was, it was, you know, so that when everybody was in front of the cameras, it was kumbaya. Everybody loved each other. It was one big, happy Chicago political family. And for whatever reason, Mayor Lightfoot has decided that is not the way that she is going. Right. Yeah. I wonder if it really has an impact. I mean, you'd have to put a lot of money behind getting that in front of voters. I almost feel like it's more of a sign or a signal than it is like you know, to really make an impact on people and communities. But still, the message is the message. And if I'm any alderman, I'm guessing most aldermen, whether they voted for it or not, especially after Wagus back, has said, vote your conscience. It's, yeah, it was an interesting move. Yeah. So, you know, I was going to say that, uh, you know, maybe since we've covered a whole lot here for City Hall and um, also Illinois politics, maybe if we're thinking about you know, biggest plot line for voters to watch for in the primary elections coming up in March, which is going to be on the 17th, which is also known as St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, you know, so here in Illinois, given, you know, all the challenges that we have on the ballot for ward committeemen and women, which I've never seen that many challenges before, is that going to be perhaps uh, outside of electing or, or, you know, of a presidential candidate getting the nod from the state? Do you think that might be one of the most intriguing things to watch? Absolutely. So um, returning to Alderman Ed Burke, sounds like I'm super obsessed with him. And I guess I sort of (laughs) am. It's hard not to be. Yes. (laughs) He is running for a 14th term as ward committeeman, which would extend his tenure to 54 years years, all while facing, you know, a very serious indictment. And he has a challenger in um, Aaron Ortiz, the state representative from that area, who uh, won his seat by defeating Ed Burke's brother, Dan, Mm -hmm. who was also a long-tenured state politician. So there's no doubt that that is going to be one to watch. Mm -hmm. There's a third candidate in the race whose petitions have been challenged, so it's not clear whether she will actually make the ballot. But it's a young woman whose roots are in Ed Burke political machine. Oh, interesting. So there are always allegations mm. that um, somebody's a plant, that they're not really <laughs> running, that they're there to split That's the vote. That's never happened before and here so, in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, so she's a Latina, and the idea perhaps being with that she would split the uninformed vote with Aaron Ortiz, allowing no. Ed Burke to post a victory. <laughs> of course, you know, there's no there's no actual proof of that, but, you know, yeah. we there are people right now scouring her petitions to sort 
sort of see if they can they can sort of get her out of there. Right. Also, there are two contested committee person elections where the person running is one of the Democratic Socialist aldermen. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting move for them who are not Democrats. They did not come up through sort of the county Democratic Party to say, OK, well, now right. I want a leadership position and an attempt to sort of move the party left of them. So there are yep. at least two DSA members who will be committee people. Joel Cazada in the 35th Ward will take over from Alderman Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who has served two terms as committee oh. person. And then so he's in, handing the reins over basically to someone over. else. Got it. And in the 25th Ward, uh, Byron Sicho Lopez will replace Alderman Danny Solis as the committee person. Now, Danny Solis wore a wire as part of the Ed Burke investigation and yep. then didn't run for re-election as Alderman and is not now running for committee person. So that's also significant changing of the guards and will be fascinating to see how Mm -hmm. that changes the whole notion of the Democratic Party leadership. And a lot of times people who aren't junkies like you and me (laughs) say, why do I care about a committee person race? Well, if a state representative resigns, these are the people who have the power to appoint a replacement. The slating process. And so we are seeing that right now. They also have almost complete and total control over who becomes a judge Mm -hmm. in Cook County. So that's, you know, important. So these yeah, are it could Im- represent a lot of systemic change. Absolutely. It might not happen immediately, but you keep adding up those little gains right. and it starts to influence outcomes. Yes. So it'll be super fascinating. Yes. I know. I, like, that's one thing I want to. I thought you might <laughs> would find that interesting as too, which yes. is why I thought I'd bring that up and chat yes. about it. Um and then what do you think will be, you know, your prediction for maybe the biggest surprise here in Illinois on election day, which is November 3rd, 2020. So it's really it's hard to say because that's sort of a whole other election ahead. We mm-hmm. got to get through the, the primary sure. first. But I think that um you know, Kim Fox, the Cook County State's attorney is going to face a, a difficult primary battle. I think that you never want to bet against the slated candidate in in a primary. So assuming she does emerge, I think that whether or not the Republican Party can sort of get itself together and Cook County just sort of mount another challenge will be interesting to see. You know, the other thing is, is that we are approaching the end of the Dorothy Brown era over at the Cook County Circuit Court. And that will also be a huge change and perhaps a more of a chance for court focused reform efforts, which we've seen a lot lot of. And that's also a super contested race where you have three candidates from sort of various sides of the, yeah. the Democratic Party hoping to replace her. Well, I predict most likely a Kim Fox re-election, passage of the fair tax, and a new era in the circuit court uh, clerk's office, I would whoever not, it might be. I, I will not contradict that, that <laughs> prediction, but after November 2016, I, I am out of the prediction business. I know, because you just never, never you know. never know. Yep. Well, I always say these conversations just like fly by and we have finally come to an end. Um, but before we go, let our listeners know how they can follow you online, Twitter, etc. So I'm at Heather Sharon, that's C-H-E-R O-N-E, a good Italian name, thanks to my husband. <laughs> um, and then the Daily Line is at the Daily Line 
chai, C-H-I, on Twitter. And then our website is thedailyline.net. And if you're not ready to take the plunge into a subscription yet, we do have a free email that goes out every morning that will give you a taste of what we do. And I predict, here's my prediction. I predict you will be hooked and you will subscribe. There you go. I'm going (laughs) to join you in that prediction because once you see those headlines and you click and then you can't open, (laughs) you're like, oh, and then, you know, you're like, okay, so how much is the thing? Okay, a spread over the course of a year, I can do that. So that's what I did when I hooked up. So, All right. well, Heather Sharon of The Daily Wine, thank you again for joining us. I'm already going to say I look forward to having you back on the show sometime right. next year. And so that's all the time we have for today. I hope you all have a merry, merry, happy, happy, whatever you celebrate, and a fun and safe new year. And as always, the broadcast is brought to you by C Strategies, a strategic communications and public affairs firm bringing passion and veteran experience to help clients meet their business goals. Thank you again to our sponsors, Evolve Her and the insurance people and to our podcast host, 1871. The broadcast is produced and edited by Tweed Thornton. Additional editing provided by Nicholas Fedora. Music by Christy Bennett's Boomy Gypsy Project. And to learn more about Sea Strategies and the broadcast, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Sea Strategies Shy. So come let the world Let's